the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Hello to all our friends and listeners. Welcome back for the big finale recap of the Star series, Becoming Elizabeth. I can't believe we're here already. We're at the end of our season. I have to say, I've had such a good time getting to know so many of you and having new people to talk to about the Tudors. This has been the highlight of my week every week. So I'm so glad that you're here. And not only have I learned so much about this period, but you all have taught me things as well. What a team we make. I have to also thank you for letting me explore elements of creative interpretation, dramatic acting, visual historical clues. I feel like I've been such a happy nerd these last several weeks. And since you're already here, why don't we have one last round of fun all about this wild and jam-packed finale episode. As we open, we see that they have progressed us two months in the storyline. Presumably, King Edward has been sick that entire time, and the doctors clearly have no answers. Dudley... Um, in his position still as Lord Protector, is starting to realize, oh no, Mary is the next in line. And so he sends her a letter through his son, um, Guildford, and he's, you know, hoping to establish this relationship with her just in case she becomes queen. And this is sort of a tricky line that he has to walk, right? Because you you really can't talk about the death of a monarch. Uh, it's treason. But, you know, he's got to make plans. We've got to understand what's happening next. And this whole episode is basically that process and how to navigate that process without committing treason and without stepping on too many toes. Uh, then the Princess Mary as she does, has something of a procession uh, to the palace, and she's greeted by a very somber household of the king's men and her sister Elizabeth. I could really feel the tension here, but I kind of love the smugness Mary has here. Even as she's riding up, she's got this smile on her face. She's feeling like she's maybe stepping into something she thinks she's meant for. She's very pleased with herself. And she knows, at the very least, you know, she's got a little power now. She's got a glimpse of an advantage. So staying in England may pay off for her after all. And I I love that. When you make a decision... And then it just sort of keeps paying off. And then you look back and you go, oh my goodness, this was a result of that one decision. So I love this for her. Now, interestingly, you know, Mary has been trying to connect with Elizabeth this whole season. But in this moment of her arrival, their interaction is like icy, really, really icy. So Maybe Elizabeth here is rising to um, a silent challenge. They both kind of understand people are looking at them. And um, this rivalry is going to start coming through. And Elizabeth's expression is really strong when her sister walks by. And so, but I almost am wondering if in this moment, you know, 
I like to think, what, what are they thinking? At least the actors. Um, and so I like to imagine kind of in this moment, Elizabeth replaying all of her decisions kind of leading up to this moment. Maybe I shouldn't have aligned with Edward's religion. Um, maybe I should have taken different uh, advisors. Uh, maybe I should have had a different social circle. You know, all these things that she might be considering as she sees all of Edward's work and all of her father's work possibly coming to a close. So though that may be a hard thing to fake, I don't know. I think that anytime there's a topic that's sort of a constant source of enmity between people, it can make people stick to their convictions even more, right? And so that may be what's happening here too. So Dudley is obviously anxious to mend his relationship with Mary. And so he allows Mary to make some demands. And she has three. She wants the release of Bishop Gardner. She wants to hold a mass to pray for Edward, which... I mean, how do you say no to that? Um, and then, obviously, she wants Dudley to just get out of her way, which I loved. She is finding her power. She's finding some strength here. She says, I need you to get out of my way. <laughs> I think I see a bit of a smirk here, too, from Somerset. Did anyone catch that? Um, I mean, don't forget, he's Dudley's friend of many, many years, and he might have found that a little funny. She put him in his place. Um, and I wonder too, maybe if Somerset's a little proud of Mary here as well. Uh, he did try to protect her when he was the Lord protector. So he may have an appreciation of her that others at court do not. When Mary arrives at Edward's side, I mean, he looks terrible. So shout out to um, makeup team. I mean, he looks incredibly ill. And it doesn't look, you know, terribly fake or anything like that. It's great makeup here throughout throughout the series. But uh, when she arrives to Edward, you know, he's kind of shocked that she's there and maybe even a little bit relieved that she came to see him. Uh, I can't imagine what it would be like to be so young and so ill and to think maybe your siblings didn't want to come see you. So maybe there's a little relief there. Um, but there's not necessarily happiness in the reunion because Edward knows that he's dying. And it was just so powerful. You know, they were really quick to cry. He cried with his sister, but he's crying over the work he's put in, uh, you know, nearly six years at this point, five as a king, sort of ushering in a true reformation. And he knows that Mary will undo all of it. But the moment between them is written really beautifully. They cry and Mary keeps saying, why are we crying? Why are we both crying? And there's just so much complexity of emotion happening in that moment for both of them. Um, mixed in with this heavy realization that there's impending loss, total life change coming. Uh, but even in this moment, Mary just cannot promise Edward that she will convert. So they both know what's coming. And Elizabeth is there. She observes this interaction, but she herself is struggling after Mary's betrayal in the last episode where she wrote to the King of Denmark about Elizabeth's mother and her poor reputation. So let's clarify a little bit about what happened in this scenario in real life. 
So I think that this piece of the storyline is based on a comment that Mary made in real life that was pointed out by listener Brooke coming through MVP in our thread, um, where Mary said she believed that Elizabeth was a love child of Anne Boleyn and her court musician, Mark Smeaton. Now, whether she really believed this or she thought it was an opportunity to kind of slander her heir, you know, I can't say. I can't say that. That would be very personal to Mary. And I'd have to know more about Mary as a woman to kind of make that call. Um, But the quote itself has been questioned by historian David Lodes, who rightfully questions if Mary said this or if it was the result of um, what he calls diplomatic chatter. And we know ambassadors at Tudor Court had a bad habit of gossip. Um, But this is the most plausible claim Mary could have made because Mark Smeaton was the only person to confess to a sexual relationship with Anne Boleyn, and he did not retract that uh, on his execution block. Um, So we have to kind of question the circumstances under which he made that confession as well. Is it torture? Was it threats? Um, someone even suggested maybe they said, if you admit to this, we'll, uh, we'll make your execution like a cleaner execution. So we can't say for sure why he said it. Um, but in this moment of our show, um, they have chosen to say that Mary is going to admit, um, you know, that she kind of made it up, uh, and she did it because she needs support over Elizabeth. She needs people to back her as a legitimate heir over potentially Elizabeth because of the religious divides. Um, And she does have a conscience about it in this series, and she apologizes in this moment. Um, But that's a really big thing for Elizabeth to have to work through. And listener Nancy actually thinks that this particular claim is something Elizabeth is going to have to disprove or um, spend a little more time with. So I hope she gets the chance. I hope the character version of Elizabeth gets the chance to really um, show that she is a rightful heir, the same as her sister or her half-sister. And this, of course, brings me to sort of a personal hot take that I have over this early modern period and the rise of female authority sort of across Europe because so many people, um, from our modern perspective, you know, we like to say, well, these highly religious women, you know, they acted above their status. They were without flaw. They didn't lie, blah, blah, blah. Um, But, you know, that argument totally removes the weight of their responsibility, the reality of their entitlement, um, the power that they wielded. And, you know, Mary told a believable lie here. And I think her mother, Catherine of Aragon, told some of those herself. uh, Because they were only human. Only human. But, you guys, I don't, I didn't see anybody say this in our thread, but Did any of you love the scene between Dudley and Elizabeth in the Privy Council room? I think like the lack of strong male figures in Elizabeth's life for the last few episodes became so clear to me with this conversation because Dudley almost comes across as like a father figure. 
you know, Elizabeth's sitting in the king's chair and she's crying and Dudley comes in and after kind of handing her this handkerchief, which is kind, he takes a pause and they actually exchange barbs. They insult each other in turn. And I thought that was a little bit funny, but it's also very familiar. This conversation between them is very much driven by grief or maybe pre-grief, but it's also an air of familiarity between them. So it feels very natural. And those insults don't really land for either of them because I think there's this mutual understanding about why they're both in such, in such a bad mood, right? Um, he brings up Robert, you know, that's a a person they have in common that he knows she cares about very deeply. And then he starts to reminisce about his time in service to Henry VIII and how he changed the world for Henry. And Elizabeth was the product of that change. And now, of course, he sees her standing at the king's place and he tells her that he would change the world again to put her in that position rightfully. I don't think she quite understands yet what he was saying there. And so I'm kind of wondering, you know, is it possible that she hadn't considered her own claim to the throne as a future reality? Even though so many others around her have, you know, she's young at this point. She's 19, maybe. Um, so it's been a few years, but maybe she was so far removed, you know, in this moment, you know, our character version of Elizabeth. She hasn't really considered this. So I really appreciated this interaction and the writing in about like how people in grief can be short with each other. Um, reminiscing with each other. And Dudley's presence here is very comforting. So well done to all on that scene. Uh, the very brief, I just adored the interaction of Knight Pedro telling battle stories to Somerset's children, of course, while Mary and Somerset are sort of restarting their strategy in the game to rule England. This is an interesting alignment uh, that they've come back to. I think I respect Mary for reaching out to Somerset like this. She's understanding who's in a position to sympathize with her and also back it up with action. So she's landed on Somerset. And then there's this great juxtaposition. You know, I don't know if this is directing or writing or editing. Uh, so I'll, you know, give props to all of those. But the juxtaposition of the children who are seeing all of these historic figures as friends. And then, you know, you're hearing the stories of Pedro that clearly tell us, you know, they're all just warriors on the same side or warriors with the same purpose. So it was a really interesting parallel um, or juxtaposition, rather. Uh, but with the inclusion of Somerset's children as well, we're given some further context around his private life and what he has to lose. Then back at court, Somerset is very visibly in Mary's good graces. And Henry Gray, as much as I dislike him, has been a really strong tool in the storytelling of this whole series. You know, he just, he pops up, he says just the right thing, and he changes the entire tone of the scene. And in many ways, 
um, or in all the ways, we have to give the actor, Leo Bill, some real recognition here because he's been given these tone-changing moments in nearly every episode, and then it goes away. But it never feels out of place or forced or like he's trying to virtue signal to the audience. You know, he's maintained a consistent character. And I think it's just been a joy to watch his performance. There is something to be said about having a small part or a small-ish part that has a big impact. And I think if we're going to bring up that, then we also have to say that Echo Corti, who plays Knight Pedro, has done this as well. He's been excellent from start to finish. I didn't know how much of a role they would give him, but they've really let him grow. And he's taken that role. And now I really, really like Knight Pedro. I'm kind of rooting for him. So anyway, Henry Gray pops in. He warns Dudley that Somerset is back on the rise, and this time he could be actually dangerous. And so we see the wheels of Dudley's ambition start turning. He probably knew that all along, but now somebody's pointed it out to him, and this person is aligned with the next heir to the throne. It's a very real possibility that Dudley could lose everything here. So he goes home, he's going back to Durham House, where he and his family live, and Robert, the prodigal son, has returned. He's hoping his father can forgive him for his absence and restore him into a position at court, but he is, as far as we can tell, unaware that the king is dying. But for his father, that changes everything, that fact, and and we learn that Dudley now gives his blessing for Robert to pursue and marry Princess Elizabeth on the grounds that that marriage might keep the Dudley family safe and protected from Mary when she becomes queen. Or if it's not going to protect Dudley, it will at least protect Robert, which is a very fatherly thing to kind of plan out. Um, Dudley sort of shows his hand here and explains his thought process of, you know, why he condemned the idea before. And I so sympathize with Robert here because all of this information would have been really nice for his father to have said two months ago. Right. And I felt like I could see the pain in Robert's eyes because it becomes clear that he's no longer free to marry Elizabeth because Amy's now his wife. And, you know, frankly, it's a respectable choice for Robert. But in the face of the opportunity to marry his first love, oh, man, that is tough. I'm so sorry, Robert. And Amy, you know, the honeymoon is over. I think these two actors as well, Jamie Blackley and Ruby Ashbourne Circus, have really great laid-back chemistry too. They interact very naturally together. And if there's a season two, I think this will be a really interesting storyline for them to develop because these these two actors in particular uh, really, really play off of each other well. It's very relaxed. It's very um, relatable. Okay, so now we're back at the palace, and Edward is, you know, he's on the last legs here. He's being tended to by his sisters. I think what struck me most about this image of the siblings together is, obviously, it's how the show has decided to do this, but, you know, it's sort of like Edward is 
in his final days and he's surrounded by people who love him. You know, he was so young. His reign really was not very divisive. Um, and But then you picture how his father, Henry VIII, died. You know, he was sick. He was angry. He had enemies. He probably had many regrets. And while Catherine Parr was known to comfort him, she did so out of duty, I think, rather than love. So the contrast here of Edward's potential last days, you know, it's very, very different. And I hope that this depiction is more real than just poetic, because I like this interpretation. Then we come to the moment, right? We all knew it was going to happen. We all knew Robert was going to have to reveal to Elizabeth that he got married. Um, and so as the king sleeps, that moment arrives. But you know what I think I figured out that I like about Robert as the character they've written? In this series, he really has the courage of his convictions. He knows the news will hurt Elizabeth, but he will not lie to her about his feelings for Amy. You know, he openly admits that he loves her. And there's really something refreshing about this balance between the characters who walk around with secrets and schemes and personal ambitions. And then there's Robert, who has the courage of his convictions. Um, and, you know, it may be a bit of a plot device, a balance to keep some humanity consistent in the series, but I think it's been really successfully delivered. So Jamie Blackley gets his shout out again for a great performance all across the series. Great casting, great writing, great acting. Now, predictably, the power struggle begins. Pedro, Mary, and Somerset are discussing who are Mary's biggest threats, uh, though only potential threats, right? And so Dudley and the Princess Elizabeth are named as the two biggest obstacles to the process. So Somerset takes it upon himself to approach his friend and attempt to reason with him not to fight this succession. And then Mary, on the other end, goes and invites Elizabeth on a hunt. But even in her invitation, it's clear that she understands she and her sister might actually be hunting each other. For a moment, I actually had a little bit of a, of a panic, right? Because I thought maybe they wrote Mary to have like this attempted murder in the woods. Uh, but instead, what we get is a really interesting conversation where Mary asks her sister if the men who seek power have approached her about becoming queen. And so it becomes really clear that Mary considers the men who are her public allies, even Pedro and definitely Somerset, to be at their core, nothing more than men who hope to have power when she is queen. And so this is sort of starting to call back to Catherine Parr's warning about who gets used by whom. And then Mary has a line, once again, very reminiscent of her father, you know, God chooses who sits on the throne, not man. And frankly, that sounds like her mother as well. But it's all a bit contradictory. Because while Mary may believe that, we cannot ignore that she has built her support system. And so maybe she's just hoping Elizabeth isn't wise enough to do the same. 
Either way, the intimidation tactics of Mary's hunt do the opposite of what she wanted to accomplish. And now a really angry Elizabeth calls an audience with Dudley in which she is testing the waters, right? She admits that she wants to be queen, but she's hesitant about pursuing that path. She says she won't pursue that path. And Dudley, of course, uh, wants her to. And he has sort of a mic drop line when he says... Um, Okay, I'm going to quote it. I know you, Elizabeth, sometimes you give in to what you want. (laughs) And then he just walks away. That is so good. Obviously a callback to her alleged affair with Thomas. But now Elizabeth is older and a little wiser, and she is making some strategic choices, though many of them won't stick. So she's at least trying her hand at it. But that was just such a great line. Massive props to our showrunner on that. Excellent composure and delivery as well by Alicia von Rittberg in this episode. It is really nice to see this development and progression of Elizabeth's priorities. And now that this story is squarely in 1552, she's 19 years old. She's pushing 20. She's a woman. She's trying to take a little political control here. And that's, of course, appropriate for her at this point. She's just not confident about it yet. A comment I really loved this week was from listener Laura, who has also noticed a very male-heavy supporting cast. And she wants to see more of Mary and Elizabeth's female support systems, which absolutely existed. So on Mary's side, maybe um, like a Susan Clarenso, Clarencius, there's a couple spellings of that name, as she was a lady-in-waiting to Mary. And then on Elizabeth's side, she's got her Carrie cousins, Henry and Catherine, who were the children of Mary Boleyn, and Margaret Douglas, Francis Gray. You know, Francis Gray especially has come up a few times uh, since the series started. And so to that comment, I say, here, here, I would love to see that as well. I think that would really round out the story. But as it happens, back in our series, the king is now so ill It is believed that he's as good as dead. The characters have been talking now openly, predicting his death within a few hours, you know, even though they aren't supposed to do that. But Mary in particular has been bad about this. So bad, in fact, that she calls a meeting with the Privy Council to discuss her ascension to the throne, essentially. And she's flanked by Bishop Gardner, who she's released from the tower, and Somerset, and also Elizabeth. And um, when Elizabeth is asked about her intentions in the line of succession, she states that she wants to observe her father's will. Um, And that basically throws Dudley under the bus. Somerset has been waiting for his revenge, and this is his moment. But just in the second before, I think they were going to haul Dudley off to the tower Robert bursts in and says, the king is awake and he's asking to see Dudley. And this moment gives Dudley just enough of a window to turn the tables and order Somerset back to the tower. And then he gets to, he gets the king to agree to this execution the following day. For Dudley, this is a coup. But for young, ill Edward, I can't imagine he even had the will to argue about an execution order. Um, 
So let's fact check this a little bit further. In reality, the Duke of Somerset was given a trial over charges of planning to raise an unlawful assembly to imprison and kill Dudley and two other counselors. On the 1st of December, 1551, Somerset was found guilty, though the evidence given has been disputed as potentially fabricated, of course, by Dudley. Somerset was not executed the next day. He spent nearly seven weeks in the tower before his execution. King Edward signed the execution warrant himself. We got a really lovely scene. Um, This did get mentioned in our thread the closure between Elizabeth and Somerset in the tower. Somerset has accepted his fate and feels, you know, he owes Elizabeth an apology for what transpired with Thomas and how he handled it. But it turns out, again, Elizabeth is really wise. She's grown up a lot. And she kind of even explains the game of court politics to Somerset. You know, he's like, how did you figure this out before me? So so a lot of you came on our weekly thread to say how much you loved John Heffernan's performance, not just in this episode, but across the series. And I completely agree. He has had a few just incredible scenes, especially, but this episode was excellent. His execution scene is strikingly different than his brother's, though. You know, the crowd here are blessing him as he passes, and his son breaks through to hug him. Oh my goodness, that was painful. The son was a great emotional tool, and I I have to just say, they got me. They got me hard with that one. Um, And then this sequence is intertwined with a court mask performance uh, for the king to sort of celebrate his recovery. And this performance is mocking Somerset, making his death a joke. And the king and his sisters are perhaps less than amused in this moment. Uh, It's clearly sad for them, especially for Edward. It's his second uncle that he's had to execute. And it's really the last of his mother's family as it relates to his life at court. He did have an aunt, Elizabeth Seymour, but we've not seen her in this series. Um, However, because we were introduced to Somerset's children earlier, I will say that following his execution, his wife, Anne, remember, she's the one who had drama with Catherine Parr, Anne was also held in the tower, so their four daughters were sent to live with their aunt Elizabeth until the release of their mother nearly a year later. So while our on-screen depiction of Edward's emotions and his sister's emotions here shows some sadness, it's not actually known how Edward felt about this. It seems he was convinced that his uncle was guilty of charges, and now in his famous diary, he only recorded the following on Friday, January 22nd, 1552. Quote, The Duke of Somerset had his head cut off upon Tower Hill between 8 and 9 o'clock in the morning. End quote. Somerset's speech that we saw in the series at the block was short but sweet, and ultimately he asked for the people to support true religion and King Edward, and then, of course, heartbreakingly, he leans down to his son. I'm telling y'all, they got me with this one. He says, I did my best. (sighs) It took me a minute to recover from that. 
It was well done. And of course, a creative addition. Um, and I liked it. Anyway, in a brief moment of hope, a late arrival comes to Tower Hill just as Somerset is taking his position on the block, and the crowd thinks that he might receive a pardon. But it is Pedro, and he's just set to come support his friend and then ultimately his friend's son. Now, something to this effect did actually happen, but it was actually a whole guard who arrived late to the execution. And their arrival apparently was so loud that the crowd scattered and started screaming that it was a pardon, right? And God save the king. They're like rejoicing that that Somerset's going to be pardoned. Um, because Somerset was fairly well liked by common people and and people had actually been instructed not to attend his execution, but there was a crowd who gathered. Now, to address the almost silent crowd that we saw in the series, in real life, Somerset had requested that the crowd be quiet. So this scene choice totally checks out. He said, quote, For albeit the spirit be willing and ready, the flesh is frail and wavering, and through your quietness I shall be much more the quieter. End quote. So it was said he was given a clean execution, he was beheaded in one stroke, and that the people in the crowd actually dipped their handkerchiefs in his blood as a sign of respect and appreciation. He was buried at the Chapel of St. Peter at Vincula at the Tower of London. Back at court, Edward unceremoniously has left the mask and the party, and he requests that his sisters be brought to be with him. So before we move on, I want to address the mask depicted in the show. This is based on a very real event that occurred, but it occurred a little differently. In the Journal of Comparative Drama, Suzanne Westfall wrote an article about the revels of Edward VI's reign. And she writes that between Somerset's conviction on December 1st and his execution on January 22nd, there was a procession that actually went through the city of London. And I'm going to read what she wrote here. Quote, the participants in Baldrick's of yellow and green, which included a mock beheading just before the very real and publicly unpopular beheading of the Duke of Somerset. The revel accounts include ominous orders placed for stocks, nails, a pillory, a heading axe, and a heading block. End quote. Westfall also does suggest that the procession was scripted and performed with patronage or at least influence from Dudley. A bit in poor taste, but we know theater is propaganda, especially in Tudor England. Now, back to our show. The king has requested his sisters be brought to him, and Robert, of course, is sent to find Elizabeth, who has just met Amy, uh, I guess we have to call her Amy Dudley now, for the first time. So as they're making small talk, Robert comes up, obviously very urgently, and he whispers in her ear that her brother wants to see her. And then they just sort of disappear, and Robert just gives Amy a little nod, and they both go away for business. So again, a little foreshadowing of what is to come. Unsurprisingly, Edward has decided to expel his sisters from court after Dudley revealed they plotted against him, but we know Elizabeth did not, at least in the series. So as the sisters are leaving, Jane Grey reappears at court. No spoilers, but if you know, you know. Then, in a nice, really visual 
parallel. Remember back to last episode where Robert told Elizabeth he loved her on the steps kind of leading into the palace. And here we are back again with Elizabeth, but this time she's discussing love with her sister Mary. And they level with each other that they don't necessarily share love for one another. But where previously Elizabeth told Robert clearly that she did not love him, here she is less definitive. She says Mary is hard to love, but she does not reject her outright. Because of this, I think Mary is not writing her off completely. I think Mary was looking for a reason to kind of do a clean break, but she didn't get that from Elizabeth. Moving forward, these steps are going to be called the love steps. So if there's a season two, we'll talk all about whatever happens on the love steps. Because this is apparently where everyone thinks it's appropriate to make declarations of affection. For better or for worse. You know, do what you got to do. But the sisters ultimately resolve to stand with one another as long as Edward is alive. Um, you know, because they don't really matter at all as long as he's alive. But, you know, we're left with the cliffhanger of Edward's cough, his bloody cough, returning. Listener Running Mama liked that Edward's death hasn't come yet because there is still some business to take care of. We're kind of glad they didn't push to get everything included in this finale. But if they're going to keep him around for another episode or two, I want Mary to get her fair share as well. Listener Terry has also noticed Elizabeth is more and more isolated. Over the course of the last few episodes, she's lost Robert in a manner of speaking. Her brother has turned on her. Her sister is angry with her. Dudley threw her under the bus. And they haven't given any features to some of her ladies-in-waiting. So she has only herself in these final moments of the season. I think there was quite a lot packed into this episode, but it was really well done. There's a strong ability in this writing, um, this delivery of complete scenes with really satisfying dialogue, but in short spurts. These aren't long scenes necessarily. So even though it moved quickly, I didn't feel like I was missing information or missing how different stories were playing out. Listener Julie P said that she felt that way too. So it's been, uh, it's been really good. I've been so impressed. And with a cliffhanger like that, you all need to start your petitions for these fantastic writers, actors, costume designers to come chat with me ahead of a season two. I would name all of you who said you want a season two, but it was like all of you. <laughs> Even historian Sylvia Barbara Soberton came on and was saying that she wants a season two. So you're all in good company and consider this a group shout out. So if there's any chance stars haven't decided on a second season yet, we should encourage them strongly. I'm so glad we've had fun with this series. I'll miss our weekly chats, but now that you've found me, I hope you'll stick around and maybe in between some of our series, take a look through all the incredible interviews and podcasts from Tudor's Dynasty. If there is a historical figure that you love, I guarantee someone has been on to talk about it. If you have any requests or ideas about what we should chat about next, let me know. Until season two, I'm Christine Morgan, and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.